Our passage today comes from Romans chapter 16, verses 1 through 16. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Sensria. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you. For she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all of the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Greet my dear friend, Empanitis, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Greet Ampliitis, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stachus. Greet Apellus, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my fellow Jew. Greet those in the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. Greet Asyncritus, Phlygon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermes, and other brothers and sisters with them. Greet Philogus, Julia, Nurissus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the Lord's people who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Will you pray with me? Dear Lord, we praise you for being our creator and sustainer. Thank you for bringing us here today. We pray for those that are unable to be with us. We lift up those who are sick and those who are caring for loved ones that are sick. We pray that you will be with them and give the ability to do what they need to. We pray today for our church family. Thank you that your words offer us instructions on how to be in community with one another. Thank you for this church and all of the people in it. God, we pray that you will give us humble hearts and ears to hear your message today. We pray that your words will guide our actions and give us renewed faith in you. We are grateful that the gospel can be bigger than anything else and has the ability to gather us together with a shared mission and give us hope and unity. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. And greet Teresa, our co-worker in the faith, right? who nailed it with all those Greek names, holy smokes. <laughs> well, I am seeing some snowbirds are back from Arizona in parts unknown, and I want to say welcome back to eternal winter. <laughs> Surprise! <laughs> we are finishing up our series uh, today. Romans chapter 16 will be the last message. I am also seeing some members from our Mexico team. They are back. I think some of them are in a coma this morning, but uh, we want to welcome you guys back. You look sunburned, and we are jealous and hate you. No, we love you. Thank you for your hard work and service. And, and in the coming days, we will have a, a nice update where uh, Pastor Ryan will uh, update us on uh, what, what transacted and what went down there. Well, Romans chapter 16, that's where we'll be today. We're going to finish out the chapter today, finish out the series, The Reign of Grace, a study through Romans. As I read this list of all the men and women who work tirelessly for the gospel, it strikes me just how reliant on each other Paul and these believers were, right? Did you get that sense? Most of whom 
we will never know. We will never know what, what these people in this chapter, what all they did for the gospel, to further the gospel in the world and in the Roman church. Wouldn't you love to know their stories? We will someday. Someday uh, when we're in heaven, we will know their stories. I, I am reminded of, of the Peanuts cartoon where Lucy demands that Linus change the TV channel. And Linus says, what makes you think you could come in here, tell me what to do, take over? She holds up her hand and she says, these five fingers, that's what makes me think that. (laughs) Now, individually, they are nothing. But when I curl them together like this, they form a weapon too terrible to behold. Which channel do you want to watch, asks Linus. And then in, and in the next panel, he is seen turning the channel for his sister Lucy, Lucy and talking to his own hand, why can't you guys get together and organize like that? <laughs> and in reading this list of all the people that Paul greets here, it occurs to me that the Christian life and the Christian mission cannot be done with one superstar in the faith. It takes a lot of people to move the gospel, gospel forward into the world, into the culture. And so we're going to essentially talk about four things today. We're going to talk about the strength that we have in numbers, our diversity, our fidelity, and our Christ-centeredness. We're going to talk about those four things today. So I think the first thing, most obvious observation that we can see in the text Paul's final greetings is, number one, the importance of relationships in the church. The importance of relationships and how important they were to Paul. Verse 16, he ends that little section there by saying, greet one another with a holy kiss. Do you take the Bible literally? Literally? Okay. Paul's greeting to so many tells us if we look carefully what kinds of relationships we need and that the church provides better than any other organization you could ever be a part of. And the first one is we need a team. We need a team. Paul here mentions all the individuals who were directly or indirectly responsible for supporting the gospel in his ministry and the gospel in Rome, the church in Rome. He calls these people co-laborers ministers, deacons, apostles, or missionaries, and teachers, and those who practice hospitality, those who are exceedingly generous. He mentions Phoebe, who served as a deacon and a benefactor, a patron of the church. He mentions, he mentions Priscilla and Aquila, co-laborers and patrons. He mentions Mary, Andronicus, and Junia, Urbanus, And the women, Tryphena and Tryphosa and Persis and Tertius, his secretary in verse 22, uh, the guy who is actually penning the book, writing the book for Paul as Paul dictates it, his name is Tertius, and he writes himself into the book of Romans. He says, I, Tertius, who wrote this book, also welcome you. (laughs) Pretty pretty slick. I think I would have done the same thing. I, Jeff, also (laughs) wrote the book. (laughs) And then he mentions Gaius, Gaius who is legendary for his hospitality. And when we read the book of Acts, we see that God didn't just choose Paul and send Paul out into the world. He gets all the attention, but the truth is, Paul had lots of traveling companions, Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Silas, Paul and Luke, Paul and Timothy, Paul and all the rest of them, all of his traveling companions made his ministry possible in the gospel. 
And Paul needed a team of people who could support and encourage and resource and share his burden for the good news in the world. So here's the application for us today. Very simple. Who's on your team? Who's on your team? If you were writing this, who would you write down? Who are the people who are supporting and encouraging and exhorting and resourcing you in the gospel? We all need a team. And that's what the church provides. We also need a family. Well, other than ministry terms, ministry terminology, co-laboring terms, Paul uses family terminology to describe the people who become so meaningful to him. If you look really closely at this chapter, you would almost just want to skip it. You would almost just want to read past it and get right to the end, that benediction right at the end, but you shouldn't because if you look very closely, he uses all kinds of family language. In addition to the language of co-laborers, he calls certain friends family terms. He greets the house. That's the Greek word oikos. And by this time, that word oikos has a very particular meaning in the New Testament, a very particular meaning in the first century church. That word means the household of faith. He greets the household, the house churches of Chloe and Achilla and Priscilla and Aristobulus, Narcissus. His beloved friends, he uses the word agapetoi. He says, greet my agapetoi, right? His dearly loved family members, his friends in the faith, Epinetus. Ampliatus, Stachus, Apelles, Persis, who is a woman, all the brothers and sisters, including Asyncritus, see, I'm not doing as well as Teresa did, <laughs> with their names, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and Rufus's mother. We don't know her name, but Paul says she was like a mother to me too. And so what we have here in this chapter is we have all kinds of words in this chapter that show us that the church is not just a business. It's not a business at all. It's a family. And we need a team, and we need a family. And so here's the application for us. Who's your faith family? What is your oikos? Who, is your, who are the members of your oikos, your household in the faith? Who are your agapitoi? your most cherished, dearly loved friends in the faith? Who are your fathers and your mothers and your brothers and your sisters in the faith? Do you have them? In order for us to do the Christian life, we need a team and we need a family. And if you're trying, let me tell you, if you're trying to live the Christian life all on your own, in isolation, you're not doing it right because it doesn't work. It doesn't work. We need this in the faith. So if you were writing this down, what names would you put down? Would you have any names to put down? I would hope that you would. And so how do we find this in the church? How then do we find it? Two ways. The first way is we need to, those who have found community here to always be welcoming and receiving new people. Always be on the lookout for the visitor. Always be on the lookout for the person who is not in your group yet. Notice how he starts the chapter out. He talks about Chloe, this deacon, this patron in the church, and then he says, receive her. Receive her. This is exactly what he tells the Corinthians about Timothy. In 1 Corinthians 16.10, he says, I'm sending to you, Timothy, see to it that you receive him, that you welcome him, and that he has nothing to fear from you. For those of you who came here the first time you ever came here to visit here, did, was there anything you were afraid of? Was there an anxiety that you walked in the door with? 
wondering whether or not you would be accepted, wondering whether or not you would be welcomed and received. And so the res- part of the responsibility for you to find a team and a family is on us. It's on us as a church to be a kind of welcoming, receiving community that welcomes people into our faith community. But part of it, if I may be honest with you, is on you. Part of it is not on us. It's on you, individually, personally, to find community. Now, if you want a family and you want a team, you can find it here. If you take the initiative, you can find it. No one should ever leave the church and say, well, I just couldn't find community. I just couldn't find friends. I just couldn't find that that faith family. No, yes, you can. Yes, you can. If you take the initiative, we'll help you. And so that is what Paul tells us here, is that he wants to reinforce to us the importance of relationships in the church. We need, vitally need, these relationships in the church. And the second thing we notice in this final greeting is the importance of diversity within these relationships. The importance of diversity within Christian relationships. Now, we are not here talking, let me be clear, about the kind of diversity that the world and our culture is always talking about. That is a diversity in of itself, as an end in of itself. That's a diversity for diversity's sake. That's diversity so I can distinguish myself from you and be in this group while you're in that group, and if you say anything to offend my group, we're going to war. That's the diversity that our culture teaches, and that is not the diversity that Paul is here reflecting. We're talking about God being the author of diversity within the church, a variety of spiritual gifts and people from different backgrounds and different cultures and different languages, all coming together for the sake of unity, all coming together to move us, lift us, and build us up, and move us along toward unity in the gospel. This passage reminds me, actually, of some ground we've already covered in Romans chapter 12. He says in verses 4 and 5, for just as each of us has one body with many members, that's one, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Paul here in chapter 16 pulls the curtain back for us a little bit, and he shows us the great variety within this church in terms of calling and gifting and background. He lifts people from all walks of life. He mentions people who are his fellow Jews or his countrymen according to his Jewish ethnic heritage, Andronicus and Junia, Herodion, Jason, Sosipater. He mentions women as co-laborers, Priscilla and Tryphena, Tryphosa, Mary, Persis. He mentions the, he mentions the men who are co-laborers, Achilla, Urbanus, Apelles, Timothy, Lucius. He mentions females who serve as deacons like Chloe and apostles like Junia and Junia's husband. And patrons and benefactors understand that there are so many people serving so many functions within the church, and he mentions these, this diversity is of God, and it's for the purpose of building us up and bringing us together as one body, one in the faith around the cross. So the Roman church needed every member to function in ministry to build up the body. 
those with gifts of generosity and service and teaching and leadership and prophecy, hospitality and administration. It takes all kinds. And so our application today is, well, if Paul had included you and I in this list, where, what would, how would he describe us? How would he describe you? Would he describe you as the deacon or the minister? Would he describe you as the servant of the Lord, the, the one who is good at administration, the one who is co-laboring in the gospel to build up the body of Christ? Would he describe you as a teacher or a leader or a servant? Or would his description be this person who goes to church a couple times a month or on occasion whenever it suits them? Just a question. How would Paul have described you in chapter 16? That's something worth thinking about. Whether or not you are contributing and co-laboring in the body toward the gospel, towards the ends of unity in the gospel. Paul is also, number three, concerned with the importance of avoiding divisive people. So, he's mentioned this on several occasions. Occasions He has to mention this for every local church, but man, this is the last chapter, last page of that papyrus sheet that Tertius is burning up that page with words as Paul is dictating them, and he just wants to get in one more parting shot. He just wants to say one more thing about avoiding divisive people. This is what he says, verses 17 through 19. He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause division." As important as it is for us to have a diverse group of believers in the local church, as vital as it is for each individual in the local church to have a team, to have a family, it's equally vital for us to avoid divisive people. Divisive people disrupt the calling and the mission of the church, usually in several ways. The first way is they divide over debatable matters. We've talked about that over the last few weeks. We don't want to exhume that horse and then beat it again. We'll leave it. It was a soapbox. We've set our piece on it. We preached the sermons. But basically, we note that Paul wants them to avoid people who divide over debatable issues. People who take these debatable issues, they raise them to the level of the gospel, and they just divide the body of Christ over them. We also are to avoid uh, terminally cranky people. Some, some of you who are looking at me like I'm married to that person, so I can't <laughs> avoid them. But we also know, we know these people in the church as well, terminally cranky. Just, they have a pet peeve about everything. Every decision that the leadership makes, they disagree with it. And so these people just become cranky and terminal, and that's why they ha don't have a team and don't have family. They don't have an inner circle, because people don't like being around them. And so if that's you... Um, Understand, you need to stop doing that. <laughs> or they're under the false assumption that they have an inspired perspective on the Scriptures. Have you ever met this person? The person who, who just operates as if they do have an inspired hermeneutic on the Bible? And, and so they, they very easily will say, well, the Bible says, and then they'll interpret it and just assume that the way they've interpreted it just is what the Bible says. I could name a couple of very high-profile ministers, very famous pastors today, usually from Southern California, who do this. They err <laughs> right here. And God bless those brothers. They're on the side of the angels when it comes to most of this stuff here that we're preaching about today and most of the stuff we've been preaching about in Romans, but they err right here. 
Not everything you think about the Bible is just equal to the Bible. You, you and I do not have an inspired perspective on the Scripture. Everything that I say to you today, and if it is not the Bible up on that screen, you are to take home and weigh it. It is I, not the Lord. My words are not equal to God's words, and this is why we gather as a community to weigh what is being said. Amen. Now, here's one caveat. One caveat. Paul is not here saying that we should avoid even or can even avoid every toxic or divisive person altogether. We couldn't do that. We would have to be taken out of the world, sometimes out of the church, in order for that to be true. Indeed, some of the very people we're attempting to reach with the gospel of Jesus are the most toxic people we know. But understand, there is a difference here between our mission field and our inner circle. Jesus was accused of being a friend of sinners because he was around sinners. But in his most intimate moments of need, of ministry, and prayer, and teaching, he was surrounded by 12 hand-chosen, hand-picked men. And those 12 were broken down into three. And then he also had the one. Who do you think the one was? John. Probably not Peter. It was probably John. This is why he's called John the Beloved. Not because Jesus loved him more, but because John just exuded love for other people. That's a description of John. Here's the guy you want to be sitting across the table from when you've got a dilemma, you've got a situation, you've got a face, and you're drinking wine, which is what they did in the first century all day long. And you want to have a glass of wine with that guy because he will listen to you and entertain what you say and really hear you and love you. The people who you insulate your life with, they have to be the right people. So we're not talking here about witness, about avoiding people in terms of witness. We're talking about the people you, you surround yourself with in your most intimate life. But he gives us a very specific kind of person to avoid here. He says we need to avoid false teachers. Verses 17 and 18, he says who, these are people who are divisive, right? They put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Uh, keep away from them. This language in the Greek is very strong. Stay away from them. For such, person, uh, such a persons are not serving our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Again, the issue here is not contact with people who don't believe like you or are toxic, but it's not witness, it's who's nourishing your soul. The people in your inner circle need to be those who encourage and exhort you in the faith, those who teach falsely about the gospel, may even think that they're serving Jesus, but they're not. And the most effective false teachers that I've ever seen are those smooth-talking sycophants, flattering people and their egos while leading them away from the gospel bit by bit by fits and starts. And we need to maintain our reputation in the gospel, he tells us. Avoid these people like the plague and maintain your reputation for the gospel. Look at what he says in verse 19. He says, everyone, everyone in the Mediterranean has heard about your obedience. So I rejoice because of you. 
But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. Everyone in Paul's day had heard of the Roman Christians, what they had gone through under persecution, how they had just got it back together. Notice he doesn't have a lot of correction in this book like he does for the Corinthians. He doesn't have a lot of that. He's got so much real estate in this book to develop doctrine because this church is serving and loving and sharing the gospel and their reputation is on display, and Paul says, everyone knows your reputation, and folks, as a church, we have to be very careful to protect our reputation as a gospel-believing, gospel-preaching church, amen? All right, you're with me. So our application is as we seek to practice hospitality to our neighbors, which, is, which we should, absolutely, and our coworkers and family, are we subtly making compromises in order to accommodate the world and their belief system? Are we making those compromises? Are we slowly drifting from the faith? It's just a question. Are we taking pains to avoid people in our innermost circle who would divide and destroy the unity of the church through false teaching? In this regard, we must be as wise as serpents and we must be as innocent as doves. And fourthly, he notes the centrality of Christ and his gospel in our relationships. Verses 25 through 27, wonderful benediction to the book. He says, now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings and the commands of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith to the only wise God, be glory forever through Jesus Christ, amen. And that's the book. The gospel is the good news. He wants us, our lives, to be centered around Christ, to be centered on Christ. This is what brings so many people from diverse backgrounds together. This is what brings us all together. We are centered in community around Jesus, and around his gospel. What's the gospel? If someone were to ask you that after this, you know, 16 chapters in the book of Romans, how would you explain it? Explain it like this. The gospel is the royal announcement that the world's rightful king and God's son has arrived. And he has arrived, and when he came, he lived a sinless life he died a vicarious death. He took our place on the cross. He rose from the dead to vindicate his claim to be our Lord and our Savior, and he has now been exalted to the right hand of the power of heaven where he now rules over all things. Have you come to faith in Jesus? Do you know the king of the world? Do you know him? Do you know his saving grace? Do you know his saving work? Have you experienced justifying faith in Jesus? And that is what brings all of us together. What is central to our identity is our union in Christ. For the believer, the reign of death and sin is over, and the reign of life has begun. And this book began with the gospel. It began almost exactly in these terms that it ends with. Paul reminds us now that we are established in the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the good news to the Jews, and the shocking good news for Gentiles, that God now calls all the nations 
to the obedience of faith. That is to say, to repent of their unbelief and turn to belief in Jesus, to justifying faith. And Paul reminds them that God's gospel is established in the Old Testament. And while you and I are established in the gospel, the gospel is established in the word. It's established in the writings of the Old Testament. And Paul reminds them that the gospel comes from the only wise God to whom all glory and honor belongs. You and I live our lives for the glory and the honor of God. That's what our entire life is lived for. So ultimately, our relationships in the church are defined and shaped by the good news of the cross. And in this new cross-shaped community, we find a team of co-laborers as we work together for the good news of Jesus. We find a family, an extended family of faith in place of our loneliness and isolation, which we so desperately need. And this family is beautiful in its diversity and its giftedness for the cause of the good news. And it saves us from the false teaching of the world and the ego-stroking nonsense of the system of our culture. And this family, this new community is nurtured in the gospel. Its inner life is nourished in the word of Christ and those who are of like mind in the faith. And everybody said, amen. Let's pray. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. And I'm going to invite our ushers to get ready and prepare communion this morning. As a reminder, if you do need a gluten-free option, raise your hands, and our ushers can provide that for you. Father, we thank you for this book. We thank you for its message. It has challenged, encouraged, and comforted us. We have been instructed through it in the gospel. And God, our, our prayer is that we would become this community, that Paul would think that every person in this room listening to this message would be worth putting in his final greetings in some way, shape, or form as we serve you for your glory. And as we come to your table, as we come to your supper table, what a magnificent, beautiful picture. What a simple picture of your good news this table gives us. So simple a child could understand it. The very symbols of your death and crucifixion the breaking of your body, the shedding of your blood, remind us that God has once and for all offered an acceptable sacrifice, the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Hallelujah. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.